Amen. Thanks, Kevin. Thanks, uh, Tim, for that uh, time of worship. Hey, and welcome uh, to you, and thanks for joining us. As you can see, we set up kind of a living room setup in the place that we normally gather. So welcome from our living room uh, to your living room. And I, I can assure you, as hard as it is for you, uh, to, to have different rhythms and not be able to come to this building and gather. Uh, we miss being with you as well in person, but we're so thankful for the technology that we do have uh, so that we can connect in some way and all during the week. And so uh, thanks for spending some time with us, and we consider it a privilege to be with the church. Now, Jonathan said at the top end, he said, uh, to go and find some elements to have communion. And I know some of you probably ran in the kitchen and it's like, uh, honey, we don't have any grape juice or we don't have any bread because all the grocery stores are out. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to have something for communion at the end of this message. And it can be anything to eat, anything to drink. And I know that sounds kind of weird right now, but it's going to become really clear in about 30 minutes. So just go grab something that you can eat and something that you can drink and have that ready at the end of this. Well, here's a question I want to ask you. Have you ever been to a dinner party, gone over to someone's house, and it just didn't go right. It didn't feel right. It just didn't have great chemistry. Maybe it was the first time uh, that you had been over to someone's house and the conversation was kind of clunky. Um, or maybe like uh, us, they had four dogs running around and trying to jump on you. And those of you that have been to our house for dinner, you know exactly the tensions of that. Well, dinner parties are really special to my wife and I. Kitty and I, uh, that's one of our love languages, is to have people over to dinner. We consider it an honor when they can join us at our dinner table for um, a meal. And today's passage, we're going to look at a very special dinner party, a special place. And it was a place that not everyone was invited to. In fact, Mark tells us that only Jesus and the 12 were in attendance. And it was a special dinner party just for a few guests. But it actually became a dinner party that was pretty depressing, like one of those dinner parties that's kind of clunky and it doesn't qu quite go right or like you thought. This piece of scripture that we're going to look at today is often referred to as the upper room discourse, kind of a big theological title that's been given to it. But Mark and the other gospels all give a report of this meal with Jesus, this final time with the closest people that he had walked with for three years. And as we get closer and closer to the time where Jesus is arrested next week and then crucified and the resurrection, which we will celebrate Easter on Easter, this is the last time that this group will spend together eating a meal. And so we open with Mark's setup. And if you want to grab your Bible or your phone or however you have the scriptures, we're going to be in chapter 14 starting in verse 12. And Mark sets up this gathering and how this happened to come about. It says, on the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb is sacrificed, Jesus' disciples asked him, where do you want us to go prepare the Passover meal for you? So Jesus sent two of them into Jerusalem with these instructions. As you go into the city, a man carrying a pitcher of water will meet you. Follow him. 
at the house he enters, say to the owner, the teacher asks, where is the guest room where I can eat the Passover meal with my disciples? He will take you upstairs to a large room that is already set up. That is where you should prepare the meal. So the two disciples went into the city and found everything just as Jesus had said. And they prepared the Passover meal there. And then in the evening, Jesus arrived with the 12. Now, Mark, along with two of the other gospel writers, framed this event around Passover and this first day of the festival of unleavened bread. Now, this festival was in remembrance of when Israel was freed from Egypt. And they had to leave so quickly that, and bake bread for the journey that they couldn't wait for the bread to rise. So they didn't add yeast to it. Thus the name, the festival of unleavened bread or bread without yeast. Now here's a little interesting note because I'm into really weird church ecclesiology. Like why do we practice the things that we do? And I came across this, which is, I think is interesting. In Western Protestant and Catholic churches often this will be remembered as the ordinance of communion, which we celebrate here at Pulpit Rock quite often. In a lot of churches, they will only use unleavened bread, or it looks kind of like a wafer or a cracker. And so they, that is so that they can be historically correct to Jewish tradition. But in the Eastern Church, the Eastern Orthodox Church, they intentionally remember it with leavened bread or bread that has yeast in it to signify a new covenant in Jesus. And there have been arguments about should you use leavened bread or unleavened bread or what should you use. Now I want to make a statement that may seem like I'm busting on hundreds of years of church tradition, but I'm really not. I think we're going to see this morning that this meal is less about the elements that are being used and more about who's at the table. And that is what is important. So Jesus and his 12 disciples go to this specially prepared room upstairs at a house. And you may already have this picture coming to mind. Much of the world does when talking about the Last Supper. And it's this really, really famous painting of Leonardo da Vinci's Last Supper. But I don't know if you know this, but in that painting, there are a lot of things that are historically inaccurate. Do you have a picture of that painting? I, I don't mean to interrupt. Oh, we do have a picture But of I'm up painting. here and I have a microphone. There it is. Yeah. This is actually, a lot of people don't know this, but this was based on what it says in the scriptures in the original Greek. It says that Jesus said unto his disciples, hey, if you want to get in the picture, get on my side of the table. <laughs> huh. um, I know you can't tell, but all over the world... In living rooms, people are laughing very hard right I'm now. I'm sure well, they are. It's, I'm sure they are. It's my but favorite Last Supper joke. That's a great. But that's actually a great joke. But seriously, who sits on the same side of the table, right? That's just kind of weird. Uh, but this depicts this painting actually depicts several older men as disciples, also. Uh, but a lot of scholars will point out that this gang of rebels was likely younger, with many of them under 20 years old. And also, Jesus and the disciples didn't sit around a table with, a chair, with chairs. They likely sat on the floor, reclined on pillows or different things with like a lower table in the room. And, and as Jonathan pointed out, they didn't sit on the same side of the table. So, um, but you can imagine this taking place in this big room, the disciples and Jesus 
gathered around this table at the festival uh, of, of the Passover, and they're eating and they're drinking and they're probably laughing. And then Jesus decides to speak, and he says this, Truly I tell you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. Talk about killing the mood at a dinner party. I mean, I don't know, but I probably wouldn't suggest this if anyone comes over to your house. And Mark says that they were saddened, and one by one they said to him, surely you don't mean me. I mean, you can see them all around the table, not me, and uh, probably it was Jonathan, not me. And they're pointing to each other and wondering, like, who could this be? Now, when you see things like this, Jonathan, or when you read things like this in Scripture, are you, um, where are you in the story? Are you watching it, or do you find yourself, like, maybe sitting at the table with the disciples, or, or maybe you're Jesus? I don't know. Definitely not Jesus. I, like, it's such an uncomfortable scene. Like, there's something in it that I, I kind of want to stay distant from it and just observe from a distance because the disciples are arguing. Jesus is calling somebody out. It's it, like, it just is so awkward. I, I like stay floating in the room, third person. Floating in the room? Yeah, something Yeah, and like actually, that. studies have shown that um, we will most often place ourselves in kind of a third-person observation of a story like this, or when you're reading a novel or something like that, you're usually kind of out away from the picture watching it. And, and so it would probably be the same with this. I would submit that we should visualize ourselves sitting with the disciples at the table. We should be in the disciples' place. And so if we're sitting at the table and Jesus blurts out, uh, right in the middle of some great conversation and great jokes and food and fellowship that one of us is going to betray him, wouldn't we also kind of look at everyone and say, well, not me. I mean, who would it be? Not me. Jesus responds, it is one of the 12, he replied, one who dips bread into the bowl with me. The Son of Man will go just as it was written about this. He's speaking about the prophecies of him going to the cross. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Now, of course, we know that Jesus is talking about Judas Iscariot here. And I want to take just a minute and make some observations about Judas. Because not only for this message, but in the past, I've done some deep digging on Judas because he and his story has always been so perplexing to me. Now, here's some negative things that we know about Judas. He was a treasurer for the gang. He was the, the money keeper. He kept the money bag. And we know that he kind of skimmed off the top for himself. And, and so, obviously, not good ethics. We also know from the Gospels that Satan enters him, and he betrays Jesus by going to the priests, the religious leaders, and agrees to sell Jesus out for 30 pieces of silver. Also not good. We know that he goes through with this plan and he identifies Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane with a kiss and points him out to the guards that have come to apprehend him. And this is all really bad stuff, very unethical, very unreligious behavior. It's not good to sell out and betray God right? Here's a couple of things that you may not know or things to remind you and consider about Judas as well. 
when he finds out what he did will lead to Jesus' death and crucifixion, the scriptures say this. When Judas, who had betrayed him, saw that Jesus was condemned, he was seized with remorse, and he returned the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders. I have sinned, he said, for I have betrayed innocent blood. Now that's Matthew writing in his gospel. And I've always wondered, doesn't this sound a little bit like repentance, maybe? Judas throws 30 pieces of silver back into the temple and leaves it. And then this gospel writer says that Judas goes and he hangs himself. And so I've wondered, maybe is that what Jesus says when he means it would be better for him if he had not been born? I mean, being seized with remorse, having disappointed his friends, having betrayed Jesus and realized what he had done, committing suicide because of it, and then being written in the history books forever as a betrayer. I mean, we even call people a Judas when they betray someone or something. Could that not be, man, I wish I just had not been born. Now, what have been your experiences with the story of Judas or how Judas was portrayed in, this, in the group of disciples? Yeah, I, I've never thought about it until you asked me this in preparation for the sermon. I, like, Judas has always been, in my experience, this very flat, very evil character. Like, like not like a real human, just kind of like a prop for, uh, you know, the, Jesus to be crucified. Um, and, and so I never really kind of connected to the fact that he, he probably was a human with all the challenges and the expectations and all that sort of stuff going on under the surface. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, it's true, many theologians, not all, but many, probably most theologians will conclude from a handful of verses that Judas might have not been what we would call, you know, quote-unquote saved, and there's a lot of argument around that, but that's not really what um, I want to argue or, or even bring up here today, is, Ju is Judas saved or is he not saved? But in considering Judas is sitting at this table, I want us to also consider who else is sitting around the table in the upper room. And that's, that's really what we're wanting to look at. So think about it. John and James, remember that they are the ones that planned a coup against everyone else. They met without everyone else, just the two of them, and then asked Jesus in front of everyone if they could be the ones to sit at his right and his left for eternity, basically to rule over everyone else. And if you remember, all the disciples get really, really angry at this. They're around the table. Matthew, a tax collector who had sold out his fellow Jews to serve the Romans so that he could be more financially comfortable in his own lifestyle. He's at the table. They all had situations where they judged other people harshly, and Jesus had to correct them. Uh, for example, they were all scared to death of a storm in a boat, and Jesus calls them all men of little faith. And then there's Peter. Now, Peter, he's really one to look at. This is the father, the rock of the church. Right after they leave the upper room, Peter is going to deny that he even knows Jesus, not once but three times. And this is after Jesus reminds him that he's going to do it. He still, he still does it. 
And you remember that little verse in Matthew where Jesus says, but whoever denies me before men, I also will deny before my Father who is in heaven. And so is Peter doomed, like we say Judas is doomed, after denying Jesus not once but three times. And then right after this little dinner party that they have, where everyone scowls at Judas because he is going to betray them and they can't believe it. Jesus says to the whole group as they leave, you will all fall away. So when we look realistically at all of the disciples that were invited to this special Passover dinner, sitting at Jesus' table, I often find myself wondering why in the world were they invited? I mean, these weren't particularly great religious men. They weren't holier than everyone else. They didn't behave better than other Jews. And they didn't always understand what Jesus was trying to say or respond even the way that he had taught them. And so here's, here's the point. Here's what I want us to get to. Is that these men, this group, they weren't at the Last Supper because they were great Christians. They weren't invited because they pleased Jesus with their behavior. They weren't eating at the table because they rose to some higher level of spiritual knowledge and identity. No, they were at the table because Jesus invited them. He had invited them to follow him and they needed him and so they did. And so do we. We follow Jesus the best we can in all of our failures and all of our faults, in the brokenness of our humanity. And I think the point of this passage isn't necessarily to establish an ordinance for the church, though it's fine, and I think that we should remember this moment. But I think the point is to say we're all invited to the table. Not because it's a holy place or because we're religious people, but because it's Jesus's table and Jesus's table is open to everyone. It's open to the proud. It's open to the tax collector in the center. It's open to the arrogant. Obviously, it was open to the denier and apparently it was even open to the betrayer. It's open to me, it's open to Jonathan, to Tim, to Kevin, it's open to you as well. All of these were invited into a special communion, regardless of their identity and failures. Even Judas, in all but one gospel, is sitting at the table when this happens. Mark writes, while they were eating, Jesus took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, take it, this is my body. And then he took a cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they all drank it. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, he said to them. Truly, I tell you, I will not drink again from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it anew in the kingdom of God. Now, this action of presenting the bread as a metaphor of his body and the wine as a metaphor of his blood, it has lived for over 2,000 years and it holds tremendous symbolism and even inclusion in some church communities. 
But you know, at its core, what it really is, it's a signal. It's a signal to you and to me 2,000 years later from Jesus himself saying, if I invite Peter who denies me and Matthew who was a sellout and Judas who was a betrayer and nine others that would all desert me, then there's nothing about you that excludes you from my table as well. These elements that we take, that we take when we're gathered here at this building or that we'll take in just a minute, they don't clean us up, they don't make us more holy, they don't signify our membership in anything. This communion from the same root word as community simply reflects that Jesus holds a reservation for us at his table. It's Jesus' way of saying, no matter what your 30 pieces of silver are, no matter how many times the rooster crows and you deny me, in spite of your common day failures, you are invited to sit with me and, and commune with me. And so this morning, I'm gonna invite us all into this remembrance at this table. And you know, perhaps taking community, taking communion as a faith community scattered across our city this morning, forced out of this room into where we comfortably observe it all, almost every week is the perfect way to observe it this morning. Because an activity like this being observed by over a hundred households this morning all together at the same time across the neighborhoods of our city actually brings us together in a way that we might take for granted when we're gathered in this room together. It knits us together. It brings us together as a church community in a time where we're forced to be apart. We actually come together as a church. Now at Jesus' table, bread and wine were common foods to have at a table. And so Jesus simply used what was common to make a point that he was allowing his body to be broken and his blood to be spilled so that we could share in community together as we share in community with him. It's the community, the communion with each other and with Jesus that is so much more important than the particular elements of food and drink that are used. Now, I learned this lesson in a really kind of weird, interesting way. It was about 25 years ago, and I was on a mission trip in Tibet. We were actually trying to set up a business model to uh, set up a rug factory for Christians that could work there with Tibetans. And there we were in Tibet, and we got to take uh, a tour of this monastery, and they took us into this room where the monks would sit and actually call on the dead. And we didn't think much about it, but when we, when we walked through this room and then out the other side, and then we got back to our little village with no electricity, uh, sleeping in tents on the banks of the Yangtze River, really uh, romantic kind of place, we all had this heavy feeling from the tour of that monastery that day. 
And so one of our group leaders, a pastor, said, you know, I really want us to do some worship and to take communion together. And so I led some worship a cappella for all of us. And then someone was looking around for grape juice or wine and bread. And lo and behold, out there in the wilds of the Tibetan plateau, we couldn't find any. All we could find was yak jerky and orange juice. And that's all we had. And we talked about this, that it was more about us as a group being gathered together, remembering Jesus and disciples and community together, that that was the important thing, much more important than the specific elements that were used. And so that's why I said that you could go get anything from your kitchen, anything to eat, anything to drink. And in fact, this morning, Jonathan and I and Kevin and Tim have communion and uh, we have orange juice uh, to signify that trip to Tibet. And then I have beef jerky because I couldn't find yak jerky anywhere in Colorado Springs. I don't know why. But here's what we're going to do. As, as Tim and Kevin lead us in another worship song, um, I want us to remember that we're not out here looking at the picture and the story of the upper room, but that we're actually invited to the table to commune with Jesus. And so he has invited you into community and I know that it feels like we're separated, but we're not separated. We are together. We're a faith community. We're a church. We're Pulpit Rock Church together this morning. Not gathered, but scattered. But we are gathered in this one act of community together. And so I'm going to ask Jonathan to pray for us. And then when he finishes praying, Kevin and Tim are going to lead us in a worship song and at any time during that song, when you feel prepared, you and your household or friends or family, I want to invite you to just take whatever you have to eat, whatever you have to drink, and do that in remembrance of Jesus. Would you pray? Yeah. Uh, Lord Jesus, we receive your invitation. We receive uh, the, the table that you have set for us. We receive the place that you have reserved for us. And whatever we are, however we think of ourselves, denier, betrayer, arrogant, sinner, we receive what you have called us, which is your children. We are thankful for your body that was broken for us. We are thankful for your blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of your sin. And we celebrate today that you have claimed us as yours. We receive your invitation, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen.
Thanks for uh, joining us today, and I know that this is a challenge uh, a little bit to stay connected as a community, uh, but we want to stay connected and informed um, with you, and so 
Uh, we w- want to remind you that we, we have a check-in on Monday, Wednesdays, and Fridays at 5 p.m., and Jonathan and Becky are sitting right here um, to do a thing that we call whole care. And um, I have loved them this week because they've just kind of helped given me some new life and some ideas and uh, some things to do during this t- time that is so challenging. If you have children in your house on Tuesdays at 6 p.m., the children's ministry has set up a connection with you online, and then student ministry has a connection on Wednesdays at 6 p.m. right after whole care happens. And then next Sunday, we will be probably online with you again uh, from this very spot. So please join us in that. And I also want to say that if there's anything that you need as a church community uh, during this time, uh, to please contact one of us. Email the church or call us and uh, we still want to be there for you and we're still here for you so please contact us if you need anything. Today the thing I want us to take away is um, this reminder that we all have tables in our house or apartment and that we've been given this calling and this mission by Jesus to be a sent people as the Father sent Jesus so we are sent as well and so The question for all of us now is how can we show the kingdom of God to others when we can't really invite them to a table? But we want to invite them to our table, and we should invite them to our table. Obviously, right now, we're social distancing, even from neighbors. And so how in the world do we display this invitation so that people feel known, seen, and loved? And so this is a time we have to innovate our tabling. I've heard stories of notes being written and left in mailboxes in, uh, in around the neighborhood. In my neighborhood, we had a dance party in the street where uh, Kevin and Lydia Andrews from our church parked their car in the middle of the street and started pumping music, and people started coming to the front yard to dance. Um, a friend of mine has shared stories on social media of people taking sidewalk chalk and writing notes of encouragement all over their neighborhood so as people are taking walks, they can be encouraged. These are very strange times. And it's difficult to share a table with others in proximity. But what I would say is it doesn't mean that we can't remind people of the invitation and the reservation they have, not only at our table, but at the table of Jesus as well. And so accept this as a benediction this week, that every time your family intentionally eats bread, drinks wine or juice, or jerky and orange juice even, do it because 2,000 years ago, Jesus called a dinner party to remind us all, we're not invited because we're perfect guests, we're not invited only if we behave properly, or we follow all the religious rules. We're invited because we're his. And even in this time of chaos and confusion, sickness and fear, you are and will always be his people. God bless you and God go with you.